This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 156, brought to you in association with Smart Pension. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Brian Basham to discuss the vital role and management of the business played by the chairman in a fintech. Brian chairs many boards today and was chairman of the fintech Archover, one of the London fintech podcast's former brand partners, for many years. He founded his first company, the Broad Street Group, in 1976 with £100 of borrowed money. Ten years later, he floated it on the London Stock Exchange. Brian's Broad Street Group were heavily involved in the M&A decades, which led to much more experience of the real politic of listed company boards. Thus, we could not find anyone better, not just a fintech insider, but one who has done the whole soup to nuts journey, the new coat of footsie that many of you would wish to do, and has nigh on 50 years experience of boards and business. Brian also kindly wrote the foreword to my book on the small company board. What is the role of a chairman? How does this change over time as Newco grows and grows? How does the complex relationship between founder and chairman work? The not inaccurate simple caricature here is that in startups, the founder slash CEO hires and fires the chairman, whilst in footsies, the chairman hires and fires the CEO. At some point, long before listing, the seesaw tips as many fintechs have already seen. How do you appoint a chairman? How does the dating and mating process work? How do you get a good one? And last, But not least, what's in it for a chairman? Some of you may think it's the ultimate top job, but many chairmen I spoke to were especially averse to chairing young companies, with it universally being liked to having to change a baby's nappy and teach it to walk and talk. Equally, former founders who had become chairman, and hence you might have thought understood the role well, found that actually sitting in the chair wasn't at all what they imagined. One said, I was a chairman a couple of times and I hated it. Another said he would never have become the chair if he'd known all that it was involving. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Mike. Good to talk to you. So in terms of kicking this off, I've started by talking about your immense experience of chairing, which was very helpful, and you kindly writing your forward for my book, which is also very helpful. But actually, one of the most helpful piece of advice you've given me is something that I'm not following at the moment. I shall get onto my excuses in a minute, but is a question of being fit and running. And Bridget is doing a couch potato to 5k course at the moment during lockdown, and she's much fitter and and sleeps much better. I sit in front of my computer and and get stressed and for some reason uh, don't move very much. And for some reason, I don't sleep so well. So how did you get into this running lark at your young age? Well, I've done it a bit over the years, Mike. I mean, I'm, I'm a plodder rather than a runner, you know. I'm sort of I keep going forever, but um, at no great speed. And uh, But most recently, I, I was prompted to get into running because in 2015, I had a, a heart attack. And I realized I was fat, sitting in front of my computer, getting stressed. Uh, you might recognize that. <laughs> and um, so I decided to do something about it. I, I was fortunate enough to come across a coach, a young lady who knows her stuff and got me running in September 2017. 
and I couldn't run when I found it. It would run 400 yards, which was um, a significant number, as I'll explain, because I then ran the London Marathon in the following March or April, or it was, uh, the London Marathon. And I noticed that I've always thought of the London Marathon as being 26.2 miles. And as I came out of the hotel on Blackheath, where I was staying, there was a huge banner saying, 26 miles, 385 yards. And I suddenly realized that the previous September, I couldn't have actually run the 385 yards. So there we are. Anyway, I got around the marathon very, very, very slowly, uh, as befits a man of my advanced years, and um, completed it inside the time, very narrowly inside the inside the time. And it made me feel a lot better. I was going to say that that is, in the circumstances of being... Uh not just unfit, but a heart attack. That's an amazingly rapid progress from 365 yards to 26 miles and 365 yards. I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? I was amazed and staggered by your achievement. I would have thought it was possible, but I'd imagine that 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 kind of recovery would take years. No, no, not at all. I mean, as long as you have basic fitness, I used to swim a lot. And in fact, I ran a marathon in 2001 when I realised how appalling the uh, depredation of prostate cancer were on the male population. I came, I came across that completely by accident through a, a prostate surgeon I knew and, and helped him a bit by getting some publicity. People didn't realise at the time that prostate cancer was killing as many men as breast cancer kills women. And, but of course, actually, it kills rather more. But it was getting, I don't know, a tenth of the funding or less. So I wrote a couple of stories and put them in the and, and got, got them published in various newspapers and spoke to a couple of health correspondents and, and helped the chap, the, the surgeon, get his charity up and running. And then I did nothing from 2001 <laughs> to 2018, apart from abuse my body. But there we are. So you can do it as long as you've got a basic, a basic fitness. I used to swim a lot. Do you know, I have a theory, Mike, and this is off, 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 probably not relevant to our conversation, but I do have a great theory that if um, people can build fitness when they're young, it's a huge benefit, and which is why I firmly believe that young children should be encouraged to participate in physical activity. And uh, when I was at school, <laughs> we had playing, even though I lived in Catford, we had playing fields and we had facilities. And of course, they've all been sold off for property development. Now. But it's a, it's a great shame. There's a basic standard of fitness, which uh, we all need. Yes, yes, abso- absolutely. So that's very impressive. And plenty of people on this, Brian, will be sort of less than half of your age, and, and some of them maybe a third of your age, that none of us, me included, have any excuse not to. Although in my case, I need to choose something a bit less impact, as a, my little running in the past d- didn't do my knees much good, but I've got a rowing machine, so that isn't really an excuse. Anyway, on to your career journey. I didn't mention, but you started in Fleet Street, as it would have been Fleet Street then, before borrowing this £100 and turning it into a footsie, uh, which obviously there were one or two tails in there. Yes, I started as what was in those days called a copy boy for the Daily Mail, a messenger really. And uh, it was quite hard to get the job. I persevered. Calvin Coolidge's great message about perseverance is a real lesson to hold to your heart. And I got the job in Fleet Street as a messenger. And then I managed to get a job as a journalist with the oldest newspaper in the world at the time, I think it was. I think it was the City Press, which is the newspaper of the City of London. And I was also, astonishingly, to my mind anyway, dyslexic. I had what's called, in those days, word blindness. But that's actually what got me the job, Mike. I mean, there's a little anecdote, I hope it's not too much off-piece, because 
one of the journalists I worked with on the Daily Mail said you sh that I should write to the editor of the City Press, one John Heffernan, and say I'd accept a salary however meagre. And I did. But I spelt meagre, M-E-G-A. And John Heffernan thought I had a sense of humour, so he gave me an interview. And, oh, brilliant. Uh, and <laughs> from there. Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a bit of luck, really. Um, so that worked. And uh, I went from there to running the newspaper, putting 16 pages to bed when I was 19, working a 40-hour straight with no sleep um, oh, to do that. So it's good training, you know, stamina and that sort of thing. And in terms of overcoming ad adversity, both with a sort of marathoning more recently, but being dyslexic then, I mean, you write very clearly. How does somebody with word blindness, dyslexia, end up writing clearly when sort of the words sometimes swim in front of your eyes? Well, I read a book and um, the chap, Frank Harris, who My Life, uh, which was a, a sort of a rather bawdy story about his life in Fleet Street. And he carried a book with him. And whenever he heard a new word, he read it out three times. And that's what I did. I was out a book. I read out every word that I came across three times and uh, found that I could then remember it. And uh, from being dyslexic, I actually got an accolade from the night news editors of the Daily Telegraph because I corrected the fact that he had spelt Pyrrhic wrongly, which was um, a major, major milestone in my life eventually. Uh, brilliant. But, um, yeah, so and you just got to persevere. Yes, it's a it's a very important story, and and indeed you talked to me in an email last week a, a new one. I'm probably going to m misremember it, or it was in German. Is it Schreit Schreiber or something? A desk murderer. Well, it's desk murderer. Yeah. Yes, yes. Somebody in Downing Street might apply to. So there's obviously a whole a, a whole 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 um, book to be written in terms of how you take a hundred pounds and turn it into a footsie in a decade, uh, a bit like how you sort of go from running 365 yards to. 20-odd miles and 365 yards. But just focusing on the, the chairman aspect of that, so uh, you were there running the city, a city newspaper and uh, you then one day get a, a, an idea uh, to do a business. Um, what did you know about sort of chairman before you, you got it and, and what was your approach in your sort of new co and your whole FTSE journey to chairmen? Yes, well, you know, when you start a business, as, a, as you pointed out, I started Broad Street Group with £100 that I borrowed, and it took 10 years, and I faced it for £36 million in 1986, which was, a, which, you know, was a sensible sum of money in those days. And I realised as I went along that journey that if I could bring people around me who could give me a bit of help and guidance, that would be a great benefit. And that's what I did. I was fortunate enough to recruit a, a chap called Roy Close, who was a former soldier, a former SAS man, actually, one of the original... SAS type, so he had a certain steel in his backbone, and I found him immensely helpful. And I found his actually military training helpful in setting objectives and trying to understand where the business is going. That was extremely useful. And then, when later on I started my own businesses, other other businesses after I'd sold off the Broad Street Group. Uh, I started other businesses. I was very keen to, I, I was usually chairman by that stage because I'd learned quite a lot. But I've always liked to bring people on board who can help with the thinking. What you've got to be careful about when you start a small business is that you bring on people who are compatible with you. You know, you, you don't want to end up with the terrible experience of 
what I call the parish council meeting, where people are much more concerned with stating their own views as, than they are with uh, actually achieving anything. So I think, I think that's terrifically important for, for people starting a new business. They've got to have somebody who's compatible, who they get on with, or somebody who they respect. And that's the approach I take to sharing small businesses. Good. Okay, well, that's sort of clear about how you came across the concept, how you used it, and, and then, as you say, became chairman. So fast-forwarding sort of the better part of 50 years in an instant, now you've got experience of, of chairing lots of businesses. Should we just dive into some of the aspects that I outlined at the beginning? You know, what does the chairman do? How does the role change over time? Managing relationship with the founder, how founders find one and, and, and ending up with why people do bother chairing things. So one of the things that I found in terms of the a few weeks ago, at the beginning of lockdown, I announced a small free competition that the first three people to contact me who'd listen to the, the podcast, I'd do some board mentoring for. So I've been happily doing that. It's been a very enjoyable process. They're all at the stage of, of pre-chairman. And I think, you know, the sort of connection with all of them is that the, the board is a bit of a challenge for them. They don't quite know how to use it well. They don't quite know where the strategic management sort of fits in, what's strategic, what's tactical, and all these kind of things. And uh, you know, in a sense, I've been saying to them that and there are different stages of funding, but in a sense, I've been saying that actually once you go to chairman, you've got somebody who you can actually delegate that kind of stuff to and who can teach you the ropes. But let's just start off with what, what the ropes are. So let's just keep it sort of simple. I mean, there's a million articles on the Internet about what the chairman does in a, in a company. But what is the basic role, Brian? If one of the listeners out there doesn't have experience of boards, if they founded a business and doesn't yet have a, a, a chairman, what is the chairman's role in the company as a whole, should we say? The fundamental thing you want, you don't want people to quarrel. I've seen so much of it happening in businesses. You know, I advised John King at British Airways for a long time. And the company occasionally was paralysed by quarrels between him and the various other people on the board and, the, and Colin Marshall, the chief executive then, and, and others. And so that's terrible distraction from the getting on with the business. Though John did a fantastic job at British Airways. So, I, you know, I've watched that. And, and I also what I've advised Hanson for John James Hanson for quite a while. And um, I saw how James really lost touch with where the business should be going because he was too autocratic. There were no quarrels on the Hanson board because he banged the desk and made sure there weren't, you know. And so you've got to sort of try to bring about consensus on the board. That's the most important thing. But at the same time, you need to keep people focused on their clear objectives, what they're doing, you, you know, you, you, and that needs to be very clearly stated. So I, I always try to maintain a degree of, I don't know, I think formality, and quite strong formality, actually, without being stuffy. So you want people to open up and, and talk about whatever it is they feel is relevant to the business, but it must be relevant to the business and relevant to the discussion in hand. And and to do that, you've got to have rules, you know. You've got to have a proper agenda. The way in which the agenda's put together is, to my mind, extremely important. You know, it's very important for the... All the detail is important. It's important for the chief executive to come up with the agenda. It's then important for the, the chairman to review that agenda. And the chairman then needs to invite other directors to look at the agenda and, and put forward ideas. And, you know, the chairman's role there is to make sure that if difficulty arises, 
you know, that it's relevant. You might occasionally want to have a chat with a person who's put up something particularly contentious. You want to be clear about that and you want to diffuse situations where you can. So that's all very important. You've got to have, uh, make sure that you have board meetings on a regular basis. I always go with small companies for monthly board meetings. Bigger companies you can do quarterly. But small companies, things change so rapidly. So you do want monthly board meetings where people sit down and look at how the business is going. And then, so no point in sitting down and having board meetings unless you've got information. And there's no point in sitting down with that information unless you've digested that information. So the timing of the information is, I think, or I always think, terrifically important. I mean, you know, my preference is to ask for the papers for a board meeting by the Thursday prior to a board meeting on the Monday or Tuesday. That gives people ad adequate time to get their minds around, the, minds around the information. And they've got the weekend as well, which is always terrifically important. I think most people sort of settle down and do a bit of work on Sunday evenings, most people I know anyway. So, so that's important. Then you, you really must have a, a proper written chief executive's report. Chief executives sometimes balk at that, but because it's time consuming, but it's part of the job. And you should have a separate financial statement if you've got a separate finance director. And quite often the chief executive takes on the finance in small companies, chief executive takes on the finance director role with the help of a, maybe an external accountant. I'm on the board of one little company and I put a lot of money into Skin and Tonic, which is a groundbreaking, brilliant skincare business. Little plug there, Mike. <laughs> and the chief executive works absolutely, he's doing 90 hour weeks, you know. Good God. Well, one of the roles that I have as chairman is to say to him, listen, there's no point in you falling over. So I've done two things. I've told him to, I've tried to make sure that he gets some rest. And I've also taken out key man insurance. So in case, he, <laughs> in case he kills himself, but he's doing 90 hour weeks, the boy. It's like boy's 35 year old man. You know, so that's all terrifically important stuff. And, and of course, sometimes he doesn't, thinks he doesn't have the time to do a chief executive report. We've well, got to do one. On that point, one of the things that I've been saying, uh, and, and the word causes problems, strategic, but anyway, one of the things I've been saying to people who are, who are pre-chairman, which is that but there is a benefit of the, the board meeting, is that it's the strategic forum for the strategic thinking about the business. And I, and I give an, an anecdote I tell in, tell in the book, which is when I went independent some 22 years ago in the, in the late 90s, I had my own, what would now be called a, a fintech, doing strategic management systems for chief executives and, and boards of businesses. One of the things that I found was immensely useful, it sounds really crazy, but this brings home the point, I think, which is that I had a nice two-person office to myself in, in Regis, when Regis was the only people supplying offices back in the day. And after a while, I, I realised that the tactical crowds out the strategic. If I sort of sat at my desk at my computer, there was always a sort of 100 things I should be doing and a list, I need to do this, and I need to do that. And I'd always think, oh, yes, I must sort of think about the big picture. But actually, what I found immensely useful was once a month, Month, I hired a meeting room in Regis, which actually cost me money. I put my tie on, because people wore ties in those days, and the jacket, which I didn't normally wear when I was in the office on my own. And I wrote a CEO's report to the board. I had no board, it was just me, but I wrote a report. And I went to the meeting room and I sat down as if I was on someone else's board, i.e. being professional for once in my life, and, and went through this. And so that was a, a very good example of even in a redundant situation where it's a trivial board of, of, of one person, 
the process of having to sit down, think strategically, the process of going somewhere else away from all the distractions and the computers and having strategic thinking was actually, it was one of the most valuable things I did actually. And I can entirely see, because I, you know, in, the, in this mentoring I've been doing for people, they, they have the same thing, look, I'm immensely busy. They are immensely busy. But actually, in terms of how to make themselves productive over the medium term, one of the most useful things they can do, a bit like, you know, being fit, being fit will help your efficiency over time. One of the most important things they can do is to take an hour out of their diary a month and just sit down and write a few pages of A4 about the big picture because they will find it ultimately very useful themselves. It's not just, oh God, the goddamn board wants a report from me. I know what's going on. You know, we all know what's going on very tactically in our lives, but all of us in our lives, as an example, you can always step back for every three months and think, oh, where's my life going? Am I doing the right things? And uh, so being in a strategic forum and having written something strategic, I think is immensely valuable, even if the word boards n never existed. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, well, I know it's right. I mean, you, what you're doing there is doing what I often do as an old hack, I guess, is, is I sort of write to know what I think, you know, mm. and that really does work. And the other thing that I try to do when I'm chairing boards is I try to have a weekly conversation with the chief executive. Nothing too long, because the chief executive shouldn't be nattering to me. He should be focusing, he or she should be focusing on the business. But I try to keep a focus on the business. I, I, I try to have a you know, ideally, uh, 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 it happens to usually be about 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning for some reason, and try to have a conversation about what's going on. And it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of psychotherapy in a way. I suppose it's what Freud would have called the talking cure. And it allows the chief executive just to natter about what he feels is, is going on. And surprising things come out of it. You know, you get little clues about doubts and concerns and it's been particularly important during this period of lockdown where we've had to think very very tactically about what we're doing in, in the particular little uh, skincare business that I'm involved in. I've been a was a financial analyst for years and um, I've been stressing that um, we really should be focusing online as much as through our normal retail hours because in my view, you know, most retail businesses are under suspicion until they can, until you can demonstrate that they are safe because they're all standing in front of that express train called Amazon and they're all trying to, you know, running cash flow difficulties. Whereas online, you know, you get the cash on, bang on the nail. And um, Onla our online sales have gone through the roof. It's really interesting. We were returning uh, 1.8, £1.80 for every pound we spent. Recently, we've been returning up to 10 times for every pound we spent. I mean, you know, it's a small business and on in one, I think Facebook, they spent £400 last Monday or something and got £4,000 worth of orders. So there's Excellent. a real tactical a benefit to, to, to talking about beyond the so tactics are terrifically important strategically you've got to be very clear about what you're trying to do what we're trying to do is in this business is build a major brand name yes so i would put that in the context that it's in it, you can see the board as something you have to have especially when you've got external capital and an investor directors you need to have it and you know that sort of kind of burdensome 
perspective, but you know, the, the board can be an engine of growth. And, and in particular, you've got the formal meeting, you've got all the minutes and all these things you mentioned. But the other thing that the founder should be looking to get from the chairman is, in a sense, business mentoring from someone who is literally older and wiser and has a few more decades of business experience. I mean, wisdom is a, a concept which is rather lacking in, in the world today. But if you go to any original society, who always had their challenges for tens of thousands of years in every country in the world. Societies have had their challenges. Historically, all societies, all tribes would look to their elders who had simply lived a few more decades and seen uh, a bunch of stuff. So in terms of the founders out there, they should be looking for some wisdom and some guidance and uh, some mentoring from, from their chairman, as well as just somebody who comes in and you know, quotes chairs a board meeting. Yes, I think that's it. And, and you spoke earlier about what people feel about being chairman. Well, one of the great benefits is the satisfaction. You've said that you're doing a bit of mentoring uh, on LinkedIn with people, and you're not doing that for money. You know, my son might come out of it, who knows? But actually, there's a great satisfaction in um, mentoring. I was a, an entrepreneurial mentor at a London Business School for a while. I couldn't carry on doing it because um, it was just too time consuming. But um, they have an, entrepreneur, an entrepreneur's course there, and there were some brilliant young people who came through, and I found it terrifically interesting talking to them. And actually, I learned a lot as well. I mean, there was one chap I tried to help who um, was a pilot, and he was also very keen on motor racing. And he pointed out that the um, information that a driver has roaring around a, a track at up to 200 miles an hour is much more than the pilot has flying an aeroplane. And he, he developed a, what he called a yellow box, which would replace the black box in aircraft so that would have a lot more information in it because the airline industry was way, way behind the motor racing sector. And that really actually interested me because of my work with British Airways. I could see that absolutely happening, the you know, resistance to change in the airline industry. You know, that sort of thing is terrifically interesting and you learn a lot as a, an individual if you're chairing businesses. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the, that's the sort of why chair. We'll come back to the sort of disadvantages in, in a second. So that's the idea. You, you've got the board meeting, the strategic forum. That would be useful even if boards didn't exist. And uh, hopefully, or certainly maybe not on day one, but as your business grows, you can upgrade the chairman role and you can get somebody with more experience who may well have done your journey before themselves and therefore as a human being has faced those challenges. So we get into the question, again, a book could be written about this, of how the role changes over time. As I started by saying, the caricature is that sort of in, in NUCO, you're actually probably unlikely to get a chairman on day one, but for the sake of argument, let's say you do. On day one, the, the founder hires or fires the chairman, and a number of the companies I've spoken to had to get rid of chairman because they didn't fit, and in general, because they were sort of too dot-to-dot -dot about things and not putting enough creative energy into the business at, at small companies as we all know, will tend, like a small fire, will tend to blow out left, left to its own devices. So a lot of creativity, a lot of tinder, a lot of blowing on the sparks is, is required sort of early on. As you get nearer pre-IPO, you've got much more process and procedure because you're, you're turning into a FTSE where it's almost entirely process and procedure these days. So how would you see this, this journey for founders, but also for chairman? And, and as part of that, we can pick up on this complex relationship between the founder and the chairman in a business over time. Well, you know, <laughs> it all changes, begins to change as you, as the power structure within the business uh, changes. You know, as you bring in external investors, they can begin to dictate ways of managing the business that might even be uncomfortable. 
I really try to avoid private equity because the, the ratchets that private equity people put in are very damaging to businesses. They do cycle creativity and people have to, you know, uh, uh, sort of put on the treadmill of producing year-on-year results which are absolutely in line with the projections. Well, of course, when you're running a small business, you're not quite sure, you know. You can, you know, people are asking you for three-year projections. Well, bloody hell knows, really. You're, it's all a bit blue sky. But you can have a general direction. You've got to have understanding. And that's terribly important. When you get to the stage that you're taking in private equity or you're floating, things change quite a lot. Now, it's not always the case because a lot of AIM companies, I've just resigned from the board of one, that I thought was absolutely outrageous. And those people, they can be run as sort of private fiefdoms, as what they call lifestyle businesses. So that's terribly difficult. And so, you know, I, I, would, I would counsel anybody who is thinking of investing in a company to look at how the shares are owned. And if they're very, very widely spread, and they've got millions of shareholders, I mean, one company I was on the board of had 10 billion shares in issue. Unbelievable, <laughs> and it's a tiny company. And, um, you know, so they're ungovernable, those businesses. But once you get into the stage, of, and, and, and the AIM market is so grossly badly organised in terms of corporate governance, partly because the market has no influence on the corporate governance at all. It's, it's in the hands of nomads, of course, paid by the company, and so there's a terrible conflict of interest. And, and so corporate governance, bad corporate governance, is rife throughout AIM. Not to say that AIM hasn't been a successful market. It has been, in part because the tax incentives are so huge. But when you get into serious investment, you grow and you have powerful external investors, they really do, where they're investors who are inclined to be helpful, really can help the business. I mean, there are some tremendous people about who are very wise and, and um, good um, in terms of helping people get, get their act together um, around, around consulting. Um, I'm just very keen on a little estate agency called Hunters at the moment. And um, there are two investors there, Nigel Ray and Gervais Williams. I know the board value their input tremendously. But you, you know, you get more formality. What you've got to be really careful about is getting to the stage where the entrepreneurial spirit is stifled by corporate governance. And then you get the the chairman who is the you know the chairman or chairwoman who who's the man who most people least object to who has nothing to add to the business apart from keeping his or her nose clean and you know they're rather parasitical these people so um it's a very very complex issue and the corporate governance books i worked with adrian capri such a long time ago and i liked him a lot and wrote some stuff with him but those corporate governance books, you know, you can't have a tremendous, you can't have a complete hands-off approach. There has to be a guiding spirit within the business with whom the chairman works. And um, BP is a company I've done a bit of work with. And, you know, they were very proud of the, that they won all the awards, you know, the corporate governance. But it still didn't stop them getting involved in some terrible disasters. I spoke to the company secretary on one occasion and told him what the chief executive had said. And he said, I have nothing, I have no interest in what the chief executive said. I report to the chairman. And those sort of divisions, I think, are, 
are to be avoided. Ideally, within a company, you want people who are all facing in the same direction. I suppose that's as difficult within a company as it is within a cabinet, unless you completely neuter the, the directors and um, line up a cabinet of yes-men, which is not an unfamiliar idea. So, you know, it is a hugely complex, but it needs wrestling with all the time. Yes, and one of the points I make in the book, I sort of take a little tangent, uh, as I do, on to nouns versus verbs. And uh, it's a very different mentality for those people who speak verb-based, action-based languages. So I give the example of um, God. In English, English is a noun-based language. Uh, so God is, is, is a thing. And then people say, well, what is God? There is God, there isn't God. But uh, if you look at um, Chinese with the Tao or Native American, where they have, especially in the Northeast, quite a few verb-based languages, you can't say really such a thing as God. There's this uh, undefinable mystery of the Tao, which is ever unrolling minute to minute, second to second, and goodness knows what's going on. Or in Native American, uh, you'd have the great mysterying. Another way of approaching this is that the idea that what's the most scary words in the English language, let's talk about the relationship. <laughs> yes, exactly. If your partner says, OK, let's talk about the relationship, oh, God, I'm in for the high jump here. Whereas if you had a language where relationship wasn't the idea, but relating, then the question of how we are relating today, how are we dancing today compared to how we were dancing last week or last month is less uh, threatening. And, and, and therefore, just a little aside, just to sort of rub my point in, um, I say that I think it's quite useful to think of not just your company board, but boarding. How is your boarding going today? And, and boarding, like dancing, is, is an ever-evolving process that you've got to be conscious and, and, and taking part in. It's not, a, it's not a set and forget. It's not like a dial. You just turn it up to where you want and then you just sort of plough on regardless. So, yeah, so boarding is very much a thing. And in terms of this boarding, which changes over time, you mentioned the value that could be added by tremendous investment directors and investment partners, which is wonderful and rosy scenario. But life isn't always rosy. And the other side of that is that some capital providers can end up being a complete pain in the derriere. And one of my friends that um, I'm giving a little mentoring to at the moment, some, some free advice, had such a situation. And in this situation, especially if you don't have a chairman, what can happen is that the CEO's attention, what the CEO wakes up stressing about at four o'clock in the morning or being cross about, is not challenges in the business, is not building a better vehicle to go ever faster in a more robust fashion, but it's the barroom rumbles. It's some guy in the board being a complete pain in the ass. So to a large extent, a number of founders have said that actually one of the values they get in growing fintechs is the chairman as a sort of um, as a human shield, as, as somebody who shields the founder. So that if the founder's waking up at 4am in the morning, mostly you want him thinking about the business rather than boardroom rumbles or investment directors that want to pull it in one way and another one wants to pull it in another. So you've got that situation um, in the growing small care or in the growing fintech where the chairman is playing this new kind of role, which is immensely valuable in enabling the founder to focus on what the founder should be focusing on. Yes, that's right. What, what in my view you need to do in, uh, is in, when you're looking at colleagues on the board is understand the motivation of the people you're dealing with. Now, we all, we all know people who really want to state their own views of everybody else's, so you, and they're pretty easy to spot. When it comes to shareholders, really my belief is that you want to go for people who are equity people first and foremost. Now, that they can take a flexible attitude, because the whole point about equity is that it's flexible. The problem with debt, it is not flexible, or not without considerable pain. So if you have an investor who is financing their investment through debt, that investor is driven by devils that you can only guess at. 
And that can be a real concern. I've had this, I had an experience with Hermes, actually, the great Alistair Ross Gooby. Uh, sadly, he got, uh, I got him very, very well. But sadly, he got leukemia. And I was handed over to a couple of people who were setting up a private equity fund. And suddenly the whole dynamic changed. There was no discursive relationship, no ideas about whether, you know, one could go in one direction or another. It was nailed to the floor, three-year projections and don't deviate. Of course, that's complete matter of rubbish in a small business. You can't do it. As you get to be a bigger business, then you should know where you're going. And there should be very clear understanding of budgets against targets, against, against actual month-on-month, year-on-year, and that needs scrutinising, and the chief executive does need his or her feet kept to the fire. But in, in, in a collegiate way, you know, I mean, obviously at the moment, we have one of the most dreadful crises that, that we face since the war. And you've got to, obviously, people are much more understanding at the moment. But at the same time, the chief executive still needs to be thinking hard, needs to be flexible, needs to be alert. And, you know, it's a chief executive's job to overcome difficulty. Now, if you're a retailer and <laughs> your shop's closed down or running a pub or something, you're a bit stuck. Actually, our local pub in Crowhurst here has done quite well by becoming a takeaway. You know, you've got to be flexible. And part of the chairman's job is to help with that lateral thinking of the board and particularly to help with the, uh, with the chief executive. If I might just say, I, have, I ran, I started, one of the businesses I started was a business called Primrose Care, which was caring for elderly people in their own homes. It came about because I had a very favourite aunt, Auntie Beatrice, who was stuck, you know, and I realised that she needed people to come in and help. So I started the business Primrose Care, which I eventually sold to Booper very well, 10 times return on investment. But the person who helped me most during that was a man called Henry Lewis. I was blessed to find him, a lovely, lovely man, who was former joint managing director of Marks and Spencer. And he just understood people, businesses, and really guided me to putting in place all those training modules that we needed for people. One of the things that really worried me as the founder of the business was that you know, one of our carers might steal from or even murder one of our customers. What would that do? You know, we had to stop that. And Henry pointed out that Marks and Spencer, that, you know, that was the, they shared the same fear. And the way they dealt with it was by proper training. And that, you know, that was in the days when Marks and Spencer was a very paternalistic business. And that's what we did. And it, and it really worked. And it was such valuable. I'd also advised the man, a smashing man called... Ernest Sharp, Lord Sharp, who was chairman of Cable and Wireless. And I asked him for advice. <laughs> and he, um, he suggested that I should take his wife to dinner, which I did very happily. And she pointed out that we were dealing with people's most trusted things, their parents, very often. And we needed to have a strong brand. And so I tried to build a brand very much like Marks and Spencer in the old days, you know. These little nuggets of guidance from, from people are tremendously, tremendously helpful. They're helping to me. Yes. So, I mean, on that point, it occurs to me that a number of the, the brands in fintech have just got a, a, a bit too much of a sort of a tech brand and don't have the sort of the warmth around it. I mean, on this point about the parameters, you mentioned the private equity and debt funded, parameters that people arrive at the board meeting with, 
I mean, everyone around, everyone in, in life is, is playing a game. And as Eric Byrne famously said in the 1960s, games that people play. And if you have an investment director that's coming in, as you say, if he's funded by debt, he's got a certain bunch of constraints before he's even sat down. The other thing which also causes a problem for founders where I've heard that chairmen are very useful is that you've got a VC, you've got money from your VC. Well, that sounds fine, but it's not actually ever money from your VC. It's money from your VC's fund. Now, depending on where that fund is in its life, they may be after realisations because it's getting near to winding up, or they may, as I've heard in one or two cases, had some catastrophes and they may want to show a realisation to say that some of their investments are doing well. So you've got the, you've got the situation there where your VC is turning up at a board meeting, and, and I can think of a good example of this, and they just want to sell the bloody business for their own purposes. And, you know, this parameter around their own purposes, their own time scales of their funds, will in general have absolutely nothing to do with the business at all in terms of when's the right time for the business to sell and have liquidity events. So, you know, you've then got presumably one of the hardest jobs as chairman, which is that you have people literally wanting to, to go left and other people wanting to go right. You know, and you're stuck in the middle, aren't you, as the chairman? You see, that's again, that's part of the chairman's job, in my view, is to absolutely make sure that the company has good relationships with a widespread of investors, you know, because there's always the danger that somebody will let you down. I've been, I, we were badly let down in one of my own businesses by a chap who was going to invest a large sum of money. He was quite a catch. He was somebody who was absolutely sent a vision for the experience that we needed. But as COVID struck, he said, I'm pulling out. And it left a blooming great black hole. Now, you know, we've spent considerable time making sure that we have a wide range of friends and we will be able to fill that void over time. Of course, you've seen terrific problems caused by Woodford, you know, and the problems he had being invested in companies that were illiquid. One of my friends, a really good, a really, I won't mention him, his name, but a really good small company investor, one of the best I know, and, and just absolutely sagacity coming out of every pool. At the beginning of COVID, it called the chief executive of every company that he, he has a share, and it's a decent-sized fund, and said, can you get through to Christmas on the cash that you have on your balance sheet and, and your burn rate, and can you manage your burn rate where, where you have a burn? And where the company said no, he sold the stock back. Now they're they're driven to it, you see. So, and that's the point at which the chairman should be in a position to, you know, work with the chief executive, look at other people, other potential investors, look at borrowing if necessary, though I always counsel against borrowing if you can avoid it, and really sort of massage and develop the, the environment. Because you've got to remember, as a company, that you're selling the product that you make, the widgets or the skincare products, but you're also selling the product that is the company. And they're, they're quite different markets. Oddly enough, they, they overlap much more than people think, because, of course, it might be a surprise to many, but fund managers are human too. And they also go out and buy, the wives go out and buy skincare products, or when I was working for Tesco, it's one of the reasons Tesco had such an appalling rating, was because all the shops that they had around London were former Victor Value stores and they were tiny little grubby units. So we had to take people up north, sort of Manchester, and show them, show them the new world and it, it changed the opinion. So fund managers are subjective as well. But there are two, two markets that need addressing in different ways. Yes, but one thing that occurs to me there is that most people, in terms of their 
assets in terms of their investments wouldn't stick their entire pension fund into to one stock because it might go up or might go down. Most people who need funding, I mean, really, there are plenty of sort of businesses that need lots of funding lines will ensure they have plenty of funding lines. But actually, I do see quite a number of firms who don't apply the same attitude to their equity. They, you know, you do a funding round, you go and see 100 VCs, and one of them sort of says they'll give you some, and then that's it kind of stuff. And if you just leave it at that, then you're literally sort of, you're stuck. You've stuck all your eggs in one basket. So these things are all very complex. I think you've given a, a good feel for, for what it's like viewed from an experienced chairman's perspective. So if people are a founder out there, they don't have a chairman at all at the moment, or they've got a relatively inexperienced chairman or a medium experienced chairman, how do people go about finding a good chairman mixed with a realism around what they can get? I mean, if if one man and a dog and his mate came up with a business idea yesterday in a pub, they're probably unlikely to be able to attract a, a FTSE chairman tomorrow and probably shouldn't be trying to do that. So from the founder's perspective, how do they seduce good chairmen? Given that, like everything in life, good chairmen are in relatively small supply. Well, that's a difficulty. You do have a difficulty there. And I think it's, in my experience, it's a question of sort of casting around. And you'll be surprised how many people, you know, that you know that great thing about six degrees of separation, which is so powerful. One of the people I advised was uh, Lord Young, David Young. And he pointed out that uh, I could, within six degrees of separation, got to Mao Zedong because he had been to China and, you know, I could get to any peasant in a field in China. And you, and you, and you can. You say, we all have that six degrees of separation. I did an investigation into life assurance many, many years ago. That's the process that people use to sell life insurance. You'd be surprised how, how you can get to people by just asking around and talking to people and being very open about it and being clear what you want from a chairman. You know, you don't want a chairman just for the sake of it. You really don't. I mean, if you think about, I don't know, who the chairman of Bill Gates's company is or, or Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg. These are genius businessmen. I, you know, I wouldn't want to chair Ryanair. I think it'd be like being trampled by a bull elephant every day. So you've got to cast around and find people you want. And there will be chiefs who actually probably don't need a chairman. You just want to go pull in a china shop at the whole thing. And do very, very well because now, because of online environment, you can talk directly to people so easily. And it's the great, great change in my lifetime. I mean, I read to the other day, Mike, and it's the thing that has changed everything and will continue to share everything. In my lifetime, processing power has increased a trillion times and the rate of progress is still increasing. So everything is going to change. And I'm sure there will be ways of finding chairman in the future, but the best way to do it is really through personal contact if you can, because you want somebody who's going to be compatible with you. Now, when you're going to be huge, then, you know, the, the market will have particular views about how you should do it, and it should all be arm's length and all that. I'm very, very sceptical about arm's length. I just don't think it works. If you look at the banking scandals, there are a number of chairmen of major banks who should be in prison, I've no doubt about that, because of the way in which they conducted themselves. And, and, you know, how can you have people who are, I don't know, social researchers or something, as chairman of banks? I mean, banking is a defined skill. It's not a marketing operation. So you, you, you really want people who are compatible with the business that you're involved in. Excellent. So before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. I wonder how many of you will end up being chairman at some point in your lifetime in the future. For those that do, I hope this has given you a good feel 
of the perspective from someone who's been involved for decades with chairing, some of the soft side as well as the sort of more hard mechanics. I'd also like to thank my brand partners for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. So thank you for that explanation, Brian. We've covered an enormous amount of material in just over three quarters of an hour. Normally at this stage, I say to the guests that they can get their flags out and wave them, but uh, you've waved them for anyone who wants a skincare product. (laughs) Anyone who's getting sort of old can uh, uh, look at your former business. I'm not sure whether it's quite the same, Primrose Care. Are there any other flags you'd like to wave? Uh, Yes, you've got to imagine that not a flag, but a huge banner I'm waving over my head. One of the things I've learned as a result of running, actually, is just how many people are in desperate conditions at the moment, particularly with the lockdown. The rate of suicide has gone up. And the, the person who coaches me has set up a, a charity appeal called Running Space, which I chair. And the work that they do is absolutely incredible. Running is something that anybody can do. I mean, I, I don't run so much as Roger, really. And it's something you can do from your front door. You don't need anything. You don't even need special shoes if you don't want them. You just get out there, get on your feet and do a bit of running. You can do it in harmony with other people. That's even better. And it has a tremendous tremendous impact. The woman's name is Jacqueline Yildon. And I have no doubt that she has saved many lives. She's a former suicide attempt herself. And so running space is my huge enthusiasm. And uh, I'm looking for support for it. Excellent. Well, I shall include links in that to the show notes for people who want to check it out. I mean, I saw on the Ron Paul Liberty report the other week, they were saying that, I did know, suicide attempts or suicide calls, something terrible in the, in the States, that increased sixfold over the lockdown. And apropos the being more mobile, which is uh, my weakness of the last couple of years, actually, the human being is not designed to sit down and constantly absorb stresses through sort of pixels on, on a glass screen. The, the human being is designed to move around their environment and Funnily enough, you know, all of our societies in the past who had far more problems, they didn't have dentists for a start. But where people moved, there was less mental health. Now, I'm not oversimplifying it, but movement is in a sense life. When you stop moving, then you're, you're nearly dead. So um, I can absolutely uh, understand, uh, along with the dopamine, that that is a tremendous cause. And I think sort of wrapping up the whole show, Brian, I think what you've shown, you've answered very well in a number of ways. Why chair? Well, for those people who are in a position to chair things, it's because you can meet some amazing people doing some amazing good in the world. And it is very easy. I know myself personally, I keep falling into it. It is very easy in the current very difficult situations, one way or another, to sit and get immensely frustrated about how terrible everything is going and and how it's all being sort of destroyed from the top down. This is maybe true to a greater or lesser extent. However, there is always the saying that it's better to light a candle than to rail against the darkness. And you may think that your candle is a small thing, but like your friend on the suicide charity, it is no small thing to save lives. There's nothing better than that. And in terms of business, to create employment and to create products that people want or to look after aged people. So I think you've answered very well, Brian, the question of why chair, why do business? Business creates almost everything that I can see around me. And in these difficult times, I hope that many of the listeners have learnt some practical ideas uh, and helpful ideas for either getting a chairman or upgrading their chairman or relating better to the chairman they have at the moment. And just in terms of simple communications, which I think helps uh, in the suicide uh, situation as well, with the Samaritans have been doing this for some time. Uh, one of the things I found in speaking to now 100 people about their boards is that a number of people are, are a bit shy of talking about some stuff. It's a bit like in a relationship where people are a bit too shy to talk about sex or something. If you can't talk about it, 
then you can't address the issues. So for the shy people out there, uh, I'd very much suggest that if they haven't had a, a conversation with their chairman about how the relationship between them, the founder and the chairman is going, we'll certainly have one. And as you say, Brian, in terms of never hire just a chairman, I say in the book, never hire just a Ned, you need to do it for some reason. And for people out there who don't have a chairman yet, you should absolutely suggest, uh, say to the chairman, by the way, I've never had a chairman, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it needs to be this openness and honesty to empower all relationships, I feel. So thank you very much, Brian. That's been immensely helpful. And I hope you continue to make all your businesses uh, work very well from East Sussex. If I might just say so very quickly, Mike, in, in closing, you know, I've been in business a long time and this is the most exciting time there's ever been simply because all the barriers have collapsed for small businesses in terms of marketing management. And if I were looking for a chairman for a business that I was running, I would want somebody who's excited by the opportunity. That would be my first objective. It's a very useful advice for people looking for a chairman. You're not just looking for somebody to sort of sit in a chair once a month. Actually, you're looking for somebody to help you create your vision in the world. So thank you very much for that, Brian. And I wish you many more decades of successful chairmanships. Thank you very much, Mike. I'll be happy with one. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 